Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we're able to come here and open your word together, Lord. I pray that as we as we look at it, as we start this new series, Lord, that you'd be with us. You'd be uh, with us, giving us listening ears and open hearts, Lord, to try and understand something, something of the truth that is in your word, the Bible. We pray this in your son's precious, precious name. Amen. So tonight is the first night of our new series in Mark's Gospel. And straight off the bat, I think it's probably important that we take a wide view of what we're hoping to get out of this over the next while. So tonight, we're right at the start. We're in chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And over the next few weeks, the things we're going to be looking at very quickly are identity. We're going to look at who Jesus is. We're going to see what he has power over. We're going to see some of the things that he's done. Then we're going to see the problem that we all have. We're going to see... Jesus facing a paralyzed man, we're going to see him clearly with a physical problem. But what does Jesus do? He immediately looks at the problem in his heart first. Sin is the reason Jesus had to do what he did. So we're going to look at that too. And then that brings us to the cross, the pinnacle of all history, what Jesus came to do. He came to take your place and he came to take my place on the cross. But thank goodness the story doesn't end there. Because then we're going to look at the resurrection where Jesus died for you and me and rose again. And, and that's the good news that this gospel's all about. After that, we see that this gift of life that Jesus came to offer is free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to tick boxes. You don't have to rely on being good. This is a free gift that is given to us with grace. All you have to do is receive it. And then at the end of this series, we're going to see Jesus starting his ministry, and the instruction in that is clear. We're told to follow him and trust him. That's what we're going to do over the next while, but tonight we're in chapter 1, 1 to 11. So let's, let's take a look at that. And in these first verses, Mark jumps straight in. and We're going to see Mark using four testimonies, all for the same purpose. And the first one is Mark's testimony himself. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Now, straight away, I think we see that Mark's method isn't quite the same as some of the other gospel writers. Uh, in his statement, we don't have the same background, the same detail of Jesus' birth like we have in Matthew's gospel, where we meet Mary, Joseph, wise men in a stable, and we have all of that background. We don't, we don't have that here. Nor do we have a fancy genealogy like in Luke's gospel when we learn that Jesus is the son of Joseph, who is the son of Heli, who is the son of Mathat, and so on and so on. Mark doesn't do that. And he, he doesn't give us the careful explanation of how and why the account was compiled like we saw last week in Luke's gospel, um, which Henry told us about. That was from eyewitnesses and from Luke himself. And the reason he did that was so that we could be certain that it was true. And that's not Mark's style here. Mark jumps straight in. Mark gets straight to the point. But before I get straight to the point, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask, has anyone ever been to a musical? Does anyone like musicals? 
it may be surprising. Henry hates musicals, he's lying. I, no, listen, I love musicals, right? And I, I've been lucky to see a few different ones in, in my life on this earth. And yeah, I'll admit, I can't sing. I can't play any musical instruments, but I love musicals. And let me set the scene. If you're at a musical, you're sitting down like this, just how you are, right? You're silent. You're patiently waiting for the show to begin. And there you have the curtain opens, the stars are on stage, and you wait. The horns start to play, the drum starts to beat, the piano comes in, the guitars begin to play too. And right at the start, in that first song that you're listening to, in those notes you hear, in those chords that they're playing, the symphonies that they're playing, are setting the tone for how that musical is going to develop. The things you hear at the start are going to pop up later on in the show. The beautiful symphonies, the chord patterns, they're laying the groundwork for how this show is going to go. It's really important that you hear what's going on in the first song at any musical. And that's what Mark's doing here. Mark jumps straight in. And Mark is setting the tone for how this gospel account is going to develop. The melodies we hear right at the start of Mark's gospel, the way he narrates this book, is in such a way that everywhere he goes, every person he tells, everyone who sees this book and reads this book, it screams, Jesus is here, the Son of God is here. And we can see this theme progress throughout Mark's gospel. He wants people to know who this guy Jesus is. In chapter 3, verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. 5, verse 7, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 9, verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And 14, 61, 62, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So we can see this theme dotted throughout Mark's gospel. But another thing I think it's worth mentioning right at the start of this passage is that phrase, the beginning. Now that's a phrase that has popped up in the Bible before. There's Genesis 1 right at the start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Another one, uh, there's the famous passage you often hear at Christmas time in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
but he came to bear witness about the light. From these two passages, we can see the creator stepping down into the world that he made. We see that Jesus is not only the son of God, but Jesus is God. And he's the light that we'd been promised. The beginning echoes the creation story and the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the beginning of our story of a new creation, of new life we can have in him. Jesus is here, the son of God is here. But don't take Mark's word for it. Mark wanted to show that this isn't just his wacky idea or his thoughts. In verses 2 and 3, Mark includes his second testimony, the testimony of the prophets. Verses 2 and 3 say this, And it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. If your Bible's like mine, it has tiny writing at the bottom and giving references to other parts of the Bible. Uh, this is something that I, like I'm 24, and I've only really started using this as I've got older, but these are little references that help you see what verses are meaning. Um, I'm, I'm only beginning to do it, but I really recommend that that's something you do, and it helps you understand verses better. Um, and in verses 2 and 3, in my Bible, it points us to a couple of different places. first one is in Exodus, and Exodus 23, 20 says, Behold, I send to you an angel before you guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now here we have three verses. We have three quotes from three different books in the Bible. And they're all telling you about the messenger who was coming to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. You see, Mark's gospel is screaming at us. Jesus is here, and Jesus is the Son of God. But you see, it's not only Mark's gospel is all about Jesus. The entire Bible is all about Jesus. Mark focuses on Jesus' life and what he came to do. From Genesis to Revelation, it's just one story of a great salvation. It is all about Jesus Mark knows that, and Mark wants us to see who Jesus is. And the prophets know that too. All through the Bible, we see them prophesying of the light of Jesus who will come to save us. And they also prophesied about a guy called John, John the Baptist, And Mark wishes us to know that the entrance of John the Baptist into this story isn't just a random coincidence. The entrance of John the Baptist is a part of God's perfect preparation for the emergence of Jesus after centuries and centuries of waiting. So here enters John the Baptist to get people ready for the greatest moment in human history. In verses 48, 
John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for, for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was in the wilderness. He was baptizing people. He was preparing them for the coming of Jesus. That, again, shows Mark's style. He's abrupt. He wants to tell us what's going on. He doesn't, he doesn't tart it up. He just says, what's going on? and gets straight to the point. Here's John, here's what he's doing. And the fact that John is in the wilderness is interesting too. You see, the River Jordan, geographically, was a border between the wilderness and the promised land. God's people crossed the River Jordan when they first reached the promised land after wandering in the wilderness. And here, God's people were being told to leave their promised land and go to the wilderness where God had John in place as part of the perfect plan, preparing the way for someone who is mightier than John, whose sandals John wasn't even worthy to stoop down and untie. The wording here shows us that John isn't just preparing for a good lad. Jesus isn't some guy who who appears and you're like, my guy, it's way, way bigger moment that John is preparing people for the arrival of God's son Jesus is God's son Jesus is here John is preparing people for the arrival of someone who will offer another deliverance to the new promised land a, a new promised land only accessible through Jesus verse 6 uh, looks at what John was wearing. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his, around his waist. I thought this was kind of random. I thought that seemed slightly odd. But there's people much smarter than me have looked at this before. And what, what some smart people tell us is that this is pretty important for the original reader. Um, you see, the original reader reading about what John was wearing gives them an idea of who John is. Now, if I was to say to you, I was at my friend's wedding on Wednesday, and there was this stunning girl, makeup on, absolutely gorgeous, and she was wearing this incredible white dress. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Samantha. I'm talking about the bride. See, you all know who we're talking about here because of what they're wearing. And that's what Mark's doing. Mark is describing John's clothes so people know who he's like. Second Kings 1, 7 to 8 says, He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. To the original reader, this description of John's fashion, of what John was wearing, is enough to align him with Elijah the prophet. 
And after all this, we see in verse 7 what John has to say. He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, John is this voice crying in the wilderness that we see in Isaiah 40. John was sent to prepare the way. He wasn't the light. In fact, he wasn't even worthy to unfasten the sandals of the Messiah. And I think another thing to realize here, unfastening someone's sandals at this time was the sort of task meant for the lowest of low. It was meant for the lowest slave there was. So for for, for John to say he wasn't even worthy to untie this man's sandals really emphasizes just how unworthy John was in comparison to the ultimately worthy Savior. And the last thing we hear from John comes in verse 8. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's the contrast. John baptized with water, and that's important. But the he John spoke of is, of course, Jesus. And he was coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And who can do that other than Christ, who is from God, who was with God, and who was God incarnate? Throughout this passage, I think it's clear that Mark's aim is to show us that Jesus, the Son of God, is here. We've seen Mark say it. We've heard what the Old Testament prophets say. We've seen John the Baptist say it. And the fourth testimony here that Mark speaks about comes in verse 9 to 11. And that's a testimony from God himself. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In Jesus being baptized here, he's showing us our need for a Savior. He's showing us our need to repent. Jesus had to identify with each of us that we were sinners and in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. Again, looking at the geography of this text is interesting. Verse 9 says that Jesus came from Nazareth. And David Mathis, one of the guys involved in a website desiring God, says this. Nazareth was an unclean, uncelebrated, forgotten town off the beaten path, even for Galilee. When Gaelus Nathaniel queried a friend about Jesus, he expressed the common Jewish sentiment in the first century. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was an obscure, rustic settlement, a lowly, mocked place where no one would expect anything good to come from. And yet, in our God's perfect plan of redemption, this is where our Savior Jesus comes from. Verse 10 says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens, being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And again, I think Mark's phrasing, the way Mark chooses to use his words, is interesting for us to look at. In Matthew's account, 
He says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him in Luke's account. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The heavens were opened to him. The heavens were opened compared to Mark's, the heavens being torn open. Mark's using more dramatic wording here on purpose. Bear with me on this one. Uh, You've probably heard this phrase used before, all hell breaking loose. According to the internet, this phrase means a situation going from being relatively peaceful to suddenly being noisy, chaotic, aggressive, and even confusing. Now, for context, let me put this into a scenario for you. I was at Tom's wedding, as I've already said, and once all of the lovely special formalities were done, it was time to do what Tom had asked of us. He tasked us with conquering the dance floor. That was the task. Now, let me tell you, can the boys dance? Absolutely not. But did the boys dance? Absolutely they did. And when the dance floor was ready, when the music was about to begin, what was a relatively peaceful situation was certain to become a noisy, chaotic, and even confusing one. When I could see Murcroft, Malloy, and Tom peering in the door, walking towards the dance floor, I could hear people crying behind me, Oh no, all hell is about to break loose. Not a great picture. But the picture Mark is painting is different to this. It is much, much better. In fact, the picture that Mark is painting here is completely the opposite. You see, the world we live in is chaotic, aggressive, noisy, and confused. And the only way it can become peaceful is with the arrival of Christ. You see, all heaven had to break loose so that we could have an opportunity of peace with Christ. Now, another thing I think in this text that was significant, again, is that word torn. There's somewhere else where that word is used in this very book, and we're going to hear it later in the series. Mark's Gospel account has the tearing of the heavens at the start. And at the end, in Mark 15, we see the tearing of the temple curtain. The curtain in the temple had, of course, been a symbol of our separation from God because of the sin we had. And the heavens were torn open so that God, so that Jesus could come to us. And now at the end of Mark, in Mark 15, we see the the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom so that we can now go to God. And by this stage, we'll have seen that, that Christ's sacrifice is complete. Our debt is paid and Christ's sacrifice, which was the only way, has torn open the way to God. And verse 10 also echoes a passage which we mentioned earlier in Genesis. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now in Mark, with the Spirit descending and hovering over Jesus like a dove, 
And this is a peaceful picture. The chaos that the Spirit hovered over in Genesis and the peacefulness which the Spirit descended shows us the arrival of the new creation. This section of our passage ends with a simple statement from God himself. When talking about Jesus, he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And that, that's what God has to say about Jesus. Mark says Jesus is the son of God. The Old Testament prophets tell us that he's the one who was promised. John the Baptist says Jesus was mightier than him. And God says Jesus is his beloved son with whom he is pleased. But who do you say Jesus is? The gospel of Mark is all about Jesus. The whole book, the whole Bible is all about Jesus. He's a pretty important guy. Mark focuses on his life, the rescue plan of salvation, um, God coming to save us, but saved from what? I'm sure most of you know the basics, but I'm going to remind you anyway. Way back at the start, way back in Genesis where we've looked, it was perfect. And then sin entered the world, and everything was not perfect. Things got bad. Man could no longer be with God, but good news. Mark is telling us Jesus is here. The Son of God is here, and the Son of God is here with one mission. To save God's people from their sin. Now you've all sinned. I've sinned. And sin is what separates us from God. We know that, right? But Jesus came to earth and lived the perfect life. And died a gruesome death on the cross. In your place and in my place. So that we could have an opportunity to have life with him. And all you need to do is trust and follow Jesus Christ as your saviour. That's it. That's all it is. Think of this. Imagine there's a book kept somewhere. A book which every time you do something bad, every time you sin and do something wrong in the eyes of God, that's written down. That's not good. That, that terrifies me. Mine would be a pretty chunky book. There's an account somewhere for your life. And someday on judgment day, you're going to have to face the Lord and stand before him. It's a pretty bleak situation. But if you trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your savior, it's as if your name on that book is scored out. His perfect book, his name is scored out. And onto his perfect account, his perfect, spotless life, with no sin, your name goes on that book, if you are in Christ. And all of this is only possible because of what Mark is telling us. Mark is telling us that Jesus is here, the Son of God is here to save God's people. And the whole of the Bible points to Jesus on the cross. It all points 
to that moment where the work was done, where your salvation was complete if you're in Christ. Mark opens this passage by saying the beginning of the gospel, and the gospel literally means good news. And there's only one way to be made right with God. But Jesus Christ is here. The work is done. And all you have to do is repent and follow him. Once you do that, your feelings towards the Son become like God's testimony. You'll delight in Jesus. You'll be pleased with Jesus. You will love Jesus. Mark's gospel is all about Jesus. And we're going to see that. We're going to look at some of the miracles Jesus did and some of the amazing, amazing things he did. Mark wants us to know that Jesus, the Son of God, is here. Mark wants us to know that Jesus, the Son of God, is the only way that we can have everlasting life with the Lord. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Can I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible. Lord, we thank you that we have it. We thank you that we know it's true. We thank you that we can trust it completely, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this book of Mark. Lord, I thank you that it talks all about Jesus, Lord. Lord, I thank you that we're able to go through this book and hear who Jesus is and what he came to do. Lord, I thank you that even though we're dirty, rotten sinners, even though there's no good in us, you love us. And Lord, I thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross so that we could be with you. Lord, I pray that if we don't know you, we would think about that seriously. Lord, I pray that if we don't have a personal saving faith with your son Jesus, that we would think about that. Lord, I thank you for the good news. I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you that you love us. Help us to love you more. In your precious name, amen.